What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Mike Duffy, one half of the Ugly Brother Studios team. He co-founded this production company with his twin brother, Tim Duffy. We talked about that. We talked about a lot of things on this episode. Um, Mike had some killer anecdotes from his journey through the business, starting with his first PA job when he got to meet Bill Cosby. Well, he didn't really meet him. He got to, let's say, experience Bill Cosby up close and personal. He told me a story about the most awkward job interview in history, uh, his time trying to book DMX on one of his shows and what a nightmare that was. And this being a holiday-themed episode, I had to sit Mike down for some Christmas-themed rapid-fire Q&A. We also talked about the time he produced the Michael Bublé Christmas special, which was a pretty great story. I just want to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, may the force be with you, Merry Kwanzaa. To all the listeners out there, thank you for downloading the show. And if you are going to Real Screen Summit in Washington, D.C. in January, I am going to sit down for a live interview with John Murray himself. I'm kind of freaking out. So if you come, stop by and say hi. This is my sit down with Mike Duffy. I hope you enjoy it. Nobody I would rather have on to do a Christmas themed episode. Oh, I love Christmas. Than Mike Duffy. Thank you, buddy. Thank, Thank you, you for being on. This is the this is our little Christmas gift to it each is. other. We haven't caught up in forever. We you're actually not. you're wearing your Christmas flannel I right now. I wore this on purpose today. I figured we'd be talking Christmas a little bit. <laughs> uh so you are at Ugly Brother right now. Yeah. This is your production company, their twin brother Tim. Yeah. We'll get into that company formation a little later. Mm-hmm. But you know how I roll. I like to start at the beginning. Yeah. Um you're a Philly boy. Yes, through and through. Sorry about the Carson Wentz thing. Oh, it was rough, man. We, I was at the game with literally 30 of my high school friends on Sunday night. No way. And it was an amazing game. Um, for the Canadian listeners out there, we're talking American football for just a quick moment, so bear with us. Yeah, bear with us. Um, and it was a bittersweet win. I mean, you know, we clinched the division, but we lose our star quarterback Lose our MVP hopes. Lose. I mean, basically, the season's over. All I love Foles, and I, he he he's come through in the clutch. But Wentz was kind of our everything. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough break. But you you've always been so loyal to the Philly culture. Yeah. Ever since I've known you, like I think you invited me out the first time you ever invited me out. Like socially, you're like, hey. Me and some friends, we're going to go watch the Phillies World Series game. Yeah. Why don't you come to this bar that we always go to in Culver City? Yeah. Come on by. And I, and I vividly remember that. That was back when Chase Utley was good. Uh, Thanks for still hanging out with me after <laughs> meeting all my Philly friends. <laughs> uh, but how many kids in the family total? So there's four of us. There's my twin brother and I. We're the youngest. Okay. Tim's actually the youngest. I'm 13 minutes older. Right. Uh, Brian, who's three years older than us, and then Colleen, who's six years older. Got it. What kind of Philly location and neighborhood are we talking here? Are we talking the mean streets, like blue collar town? Are we talking like the suburbs? What what was it like? What was the upbringing? So Philly, the first Western suburb of Philadelphia is called Balakinwood. It's, you can't even spell it. It's a, it's a C. There's a C in that, in that word. Uh, And we, the neighborhood is just on the other side of City Line Avenue. So we're basically one foot in the city, one foot in the suburbs. Okay. We, our neighborhood was a, a very, you know, sort of like middle class, I would say like lower 
to, to sort of middle, middle class. Um, what did your dad do? He was a teacher. So my teacher, oh. my dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And hard workers. Yeah. Oh, such hard workers. Yeah. And they, they had multiple jobs. My dad always had a second job. Mm-hmm. My mom mm-hmm. would pick up extra shifts all the time. She'd work holidays. So she'd be at time and a half. Wait, I, wait, wait. So as a teacher, your dad would have a second job throughout the school year or just in the summer? Uh, it, it, both. Um, wow. During the school year in the 80s, he actually started working at Sears in the kitchens and bathrooms department. And then, um, and that was just after school. He would just pick up a few hours, and mm. he, I think it was a commissions-based job. Mm. He found some success in that, and then sta- started a business. He was an entrepreneur. Uh, that and and the the business ended up folding in right. the recession of '89. But super hard worker. But in the summers, uh, yeah, you must remember a lot of these different jobs he must have had for quick summer gigs, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, in the summers, he actually was the custodian at our high school. Oh. So in summers, he would be cleaning bathrooms and, like, painting and stuff like that. How'd that go over as a teenager? Um, great. I mean, honestly, we worked so hard from when we were little that for us it was just hard work. I mean, the right. lessons we learned from our dad. But you didn't catch anything from, like, classmates? Like, hey, your dad's the one cleaning up? The no. Um, no, but here's why. Because my dad was also – he became the disciplinarian at my high school. Oh, so, but he was gone by the time we got to high school. He was there when my sister was there. Okay. But, but so by the time I got to Archbishop Carroll High School in Radnor, Pennsylvania, um, my dad was a legend. I mean, mm. he was the, you know, tough guy. He was the chemistry and physics teacher. Okay. He was either your favorite teacher you ever had or your least favorite. Or you feared him. Yes. I mean, he was a, he was like, it was not, he was <laughs> never in the middle. But I would say that, um, the organization of it, the you know diligence of development, comes from being a middle child, right? Um, being you consider yourself a middle child? Definitely. I, I think of myself as my. I have a my family is a group of very loud people who are constantly sharing their opinions, and it's like you you try to get a word in, it's impossible. So I'm I I think I'm sort of more of a listener. Hmm. And and I felt like, and I've been processing this a lot lately in therapy. Um, <laughs> and no. I have you on the couch right now. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> so this is good. This, I'm, I'm hoping I Let's can... Let's work through this together. Let's kill explore Kill two birds with one stone Let's here. explore that, Mike. Yeah, get uh, advance in my own psychology and, um, you know, get a little Christmas love out But there. it is interesting for you to refer to yourself as a middle child because you are co-youngest with your twin. Yeah, and my... my... So is it the way they handled you? I, I think so. I, I, I think that... Um, when you're in a family of four siblings and there's a lot of big personalities, you look for the opportunities to stand out and be useful. Mm. And for me, it was to, to literally be helpful and useful in my home, you know, and try to be a problem solver for my siblings and for my parents. Mm. I just have always kind of been that way. And yeah. I don't necessarily need to be the the loudest person at the dinner table. So a lot of this, this attitude of like, how is the team doing came from Tim and I were co-captains of our sports teams. We were on the same landscaping crews in order to get the job done. You had to have a healthy mindset and you had to have people actually pulling their weight. And then when somebody else needed a little help, you, you know, you, you popped over and helped them out and to finish the job. So everything, all those things are literally translated into how we work today. But, but Tim and I, um, you know, in, in sort of, uh, I would say that the, the first times we sort started to separate 
were um, in high school when I started in musical theater. I went down the musical theater path as a sort of extracurricular activity in addition to sports, and I ended up stopping track in order to do uh, musical theater where Tim joined, he joined the lacrosse team. So that was like our first diversion where we went, all right, you go that way. I'm going to go this way. Check it out. And then Tim, of course, came and joined me in musical theater, you know, the next year because, I mean, the odds were great. It was me and, like, 65 girls and, like, a couple of nerdy guys. Where did the calling from musical theater come from? I knew since I was a little kid that I wanted to be involved in entertainment. I remember seeing, um, you know, Glenn and Les Charles, you know, created by credit for Cheers, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think that was their name, right? Mm -hmm. I love those created by credits. And I always just thought that was cool, like Chuck Barris. And and I I just thought, well, someone created That was before they were trapped in a quick scroll that people never see anymore. Yeah, exactly. Or the front credits. Usually the created bys are – sometimes you still get those up front, right? Um, I just loved that. I thought it was cool because for us, you know – the times when we were together as a family growing up were around meals and around watching TV. We watched the Cosby show. We, you know, we watched cheers together. We, you know, we talked about what, what, you know, the stories were on the show and reflected the characters experiences in our own conversations. I mean, I literally do that today in, when I watch cuts, I think about what it means to me as a human being. Um, I sat, with my mom last night uh, on my couch at my house watching TV and we were talking about what we were watching. And it was the same exact experience that it was back when I was. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that? You mean as you are watching it, you and as a family back in high school, junior high would experience your own emotional takeaway from yeah. what you were just viewing. Yeah. Like we, I remember watching That's such an elevated conversation to have in the home. I usually just laugh and sit in silence for oh, a half hour. We talked, I mean, our family talked and I remember there was a, um, remember the show 30 something. Yeah, of course. So Ken, there was Ken Olin, by the way, the lead in 30 something directed the pilot for the arrangement. Oh really? So I got to know Ken actually very well. He was my director. Cool. I never watched a minute of 30 of something. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I'm working with Ken and everybody I talk to knows Ken from 30-something, and I've heard of 30-something my whole life. I just, you know, I was too young to watch it at the time. So I'm like, it's on Hulu. I'm going to watch 30-something. Awesome. Mike, if you remember the first season of the first few episodes of 30-something, he's a young father with his firstborn, and they just bought a house, and it's under construction, and they're renovating everything in, like, the first few episodes. Wow. I am literally living through the same experience as I watch 30-something for the first time. How cool is that? And I'm watching my... 50-something-year-old, 60-something-year-old director now living the life I'm leading at the, in the moment, yeah. and it completely held up. Yeah. 30-something completely held up to the moment I was going through in that first year of my child's life in a new house, construction, the whole time. I mean, I, you know, people talk about This Is Us, right? And, and oh, it's totally. so well-written, and it's like so emotional. And Ken's now directing on This Is Us. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, for us in the 80s, our This Is Us was 30-something. Yeah. And, you know... How old were you? So I was, I was born in 74. I'm 43. I just turned 43. Oh, okay. So you're my, you're my brother's age. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, for us, I mean, it was just... Scripted television was... An op, it, it sort of inspired us toward conversation. So I remember there was an episode of, of 30-something. I don't remember who it was, but there was a cancer storyline. Yes. That. One of the wives, I think, gets yeah. it. And she went through chemo and she lost her hair and all this stuff. And I remember um, talking to my mom about that. Uh, and, and actually, 
my, her parents had just passed away just mm. like a, within a couple of years of that episode. Mm. And it, and it actually inspired a conversation about her experiences losing her parents and what that meant on many profound levels and practical levels within her life. And it's funny because, um, you know, I think scripted TV when it's at its best actually does exactly that. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it puts the water cooler right smack in the middle of the couch where you're sitting with your loved ones or your right. friends. Um, my dad actually just passed away just a couple months ago. And we were, we've been reflecting on all of these shows that we would watch. And mm-hmm. the fact that Tim and I are now in entertainment, our older brother, Brian is also on television from time to time. He's a, a chef. chef. Yeah. Yeah. So your father is a hardworking teacher from Philly. Yeah. And he has his two twin boys go off to Hollywood, strike a production company for themselves after, you know, toiling and working hard in the business for many years. Yeah. He must have been really proud over the last couple of years to see where you guys got to partnering, right? Yeah, I mean, he... And what do you think about that? Like, he never envisioned any of his kids going off to Hollywood, I'm I, I'm sure. No, I mean, he... I, when I left, I, I moved to L.A. in 1999, and I, I moved out to L.A. to be an actor. Mm. Um, I was a theater actor, and as you know, the theater scene in L.A. is really hot. <laughs> uh, um, so I did not get any work. And he, he... I said to my mom and dad, I'm like, I'm just going to go for two years. I'll be back in two years. But why didn't you go to New York? Uh, because I want, I always knew I wanted to come to LA at the weather and three's company. I mean, the open of three's, it's company. always a show. I wanted to come my and wife knock on your door. My wife, it was 90210. Dude, that's it. I mean, I was like that. Oh my God. If that's what Southern California is like, right. and I have to deal through these winters. Yes. I I'm see, in. See, I've lived here my whole life, so I never had that. But like for everybody else I talked to that came out here, there's always a show or a book or yeah. a movie that made them aspire to, I got to get there one day Absolutely. for you is literally Jack Tripper. Yes. And three's company. Yes. By day, I was working as a PA. I worked on Kids Say the Darnest Things with uh, Bill Cosby. It was great. Um, I did see some pretty shitty behavior on his part, which was uh, – yeah, for sure. I mean it was um, one of those moments you know, that actually Tim and I both have a really funny Bill Cosby uh, story. I'll tell mine first, um, so and then I'll tell Tim's and steal his thunder since he's not here and this is a rare opportunity. Um, Basically, I I get a job on Kids Say the Darndest Things. I'm a PA, and I see Bill Cosby. Now, we had been told by Eric Schatz, the executive producer, who's awesome and has been a mentor to me over my career, um, listen, don't don't talk to Bill Cosby. Call him doctor. You know, just if he's walking through the hallway, don't don't, like, engage with him. It wasn't one of those things like, you can't do this, you can't do that. So it that's was, where Steve Harvey learned it. <laughs> yeah. No, when I read that letter from about Steve Harvey, I thought, man, that sounds exactly like Cosby in the 90s. Yeah. But I look at – I'm looking at Cosby and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is Bill Cosby. I, I, was, I watched Bill Cosby himself, the HBO special where he just sat in the chair and delivered this amazing comedy. And we listened to, listened to the comedy albums and all that. And I was just so inspired by him. And I felt like he was, you know – like he could be friends with my parents, yeah, you know, and that was Cliff Huxtable. That was you know the persona that, of course, he created. Um, so when I saw him throw a bagel at the craft services lady and tell him that's not, or tell her this is not a fucking bagel, 
don't come back here until you get me some real fucking bagels. I thought, oh, somebody's having a bad day. Um, were, were, were they not real bagels? They were fine. I mean, it was like... Were they not from the place he wanted them from? They, listen, he had a rider. You had to, his, his, you know, green room had to be at 68 degrees. He had to have Cuban cigars. He had to have Coca-Cola in a bottle. Keep in mind, this is onset of Kids Say the Darnest Things. Kids Say the Darnest Things. We shot at KTLA up there on uh, Sunset. And, you know, so there was a lot of like, okay, this is, this is a big star. How old are you? I'm 24. Where'd you go to college again? We skipped over that. Penn State. You went to Penn State. Yeah, journalism, right. Penn State. Okay, journalism, Penn State, theater guy, yeah. L.A., first PA job, Bill Cosby, your co- comedy hero. Yes. And he's throwing a bagel at the at craft, craft service woman. It was awful. And it's like, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah, welcome to Hollywood. And I just thought, you know what? Fuck that guy. That is something that I will never, I don't care who you are, if, if you're a celebrity or not, I'm not interested in working with people like that. But did you, for even a second, consider maybe I'm not made out for this business? Absolutely. Like, you just got there. Yeah. It's your first job. And to completely have a hero, like the vision of a hero, crumble before your eyes as your first introduction to the town and the industry, I would completely think, I'm going back to Philly. I don't need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know... For me, it was like I, I always, I've, I've always felt that um, as I ex- meet people who are who behave very poorly and they exhibit behaviors that are inappropriate or whatever, I've always felt like I was sort of called to be an example of proper behavior and treat mm. people the right way, mm. okay. and that was a good, important lesson. Funny enough, Tim worked for um, Norman Brokaw. Cosby's publicist at the time. He okay. Was, so there's a Brokaw who's part of the William Morris agency. I was thinking Tom Brokaw, the newsman, when no, he no, said no. that. Uh, I think his name was Norman Brokaw. And it was a uh, pub- publicity agency. My brother was told the first day, you know, hey, if Dr. Cosby calls, do not address him personally. Just put the call through. Of course, Tim, being from Philly, gets a call from Bill Cosby and says, <laughs> Oh, my God, Bill. Hey, it's Tim Duffy. I just moved here from Philly. I'm a huge fan. We grew up watching you. And didn't, didn't Cosby grow up in Philly? Cosby uh, grew up. Um, did he grow up in Philly? I feel like I remember him talking about that. I mean, a, a lot of his stuff. He went to school in Philly. I think he did grow up. In I think Philly. he was. I feel like I remember him telling stories about being an Eagles fan young and, yeah. and all that. Yeah. But he um, Cosby says to Tim, um, what is your name? It's Tim Duffy, Tim, Tim, Timothy Duffy. <laughs> Tim was fired the next day. What? Yeah. Fired. That's why he asked for the name. Yeah. Of course they didn't tell him that he was fired because he addressed Dr. Cosby as bill and tried to engage with him. He was told that he was fired because he didn't uh, wear the appropriate attire to work. He dressed <gasps> like he was from the ghetto. <laughs> oh my God. It's amazing. You guys could both have a bill anecdote in your, uh, no. in your, in your early days in town. Crazy. All right, so what was the first, say, big break to get you on the right path? Comedy, for me, was, was everything. I mean, I, so I worked, um, when I left the Kids Say the Darnest Things fray, I got a job working at Tales from the Crypt Productions. Huh. Um, it was after the TV show was over. We were making some movies. We did Bordello Blood. But what was so cool about it was, you know, during the day, I was working for Joel Silver. And right. I was interacting with Robert Zemeckis and Walter Hill and David Geiler and, you know, and, and like in their, you know, their sort of sphere a bit. And 
and we were developing new projects for the Tales from the Crypt, um, you know, uh, uh, property. So it was right. like we were doing animatronic crypt keepers, and we were doing you know scripted shows and and animation, and and then licensing out the wazoo every Halloween. Right. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. I did that for three years, but at night I was doing uh, stand up. So I'd be, I'd gone out. I, I basically one day I, I said, all right, I, I need to figure out how to take this live performing thing and turn it into something. I still had the bug at that point to be a performer, uh, which I do not have anymore. But um, I, I just thought, all right, let, let me go out and try stand-up. If, if I can't get a job as an actor, let me try to put my personality into it. Because I felt like I was, I was just a headshot, and it was a theater headshot. <laughs> so, wait, wait. What were some of the worst headshots? What, like leather jacket version of no, Mike? I nev- no, I never did. I like was football always- varsity player Mike? Nope, I never had themed out okay. headshots. It was always just truly a headshot with me giving a way too serious look yes, to the camera. Yes, you're Luke Perry. This is yeah. my actor face, you know? Uh, <laughs> it was bad. I mean, like, I would never put me in anything, right? And that's, that was my attitude. I was like, I, 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 by day I'm working, you know in these casting calls for these, these shows and these movies and stuff. And at night I'm doing stand-up comedy. I started working at the comedy store. I became a regular there uh, until Mitzi forgot that she War- made me a regular working there, meaning on stage or were you, were you doing stand-up and working there? Yeah. So when you're a non-paid regular at the comedy store back then you, you worked the cover booth. Right. Um, and you, you work the light and you would bounce at like bigger shows. And you so got like an hourly wage for that get an hourly wage. And I would get stage time. Okay. And so, I'd, and I could come up, and I could perform at the Belly Room whenever I wanted to. And every once in a while, they'd throw me like an original room set. Very cool. And it was just cool. So I started. Um, really, that's when I started thinking about being a producer hmm. because I needed to trade. I needed to find more stage time. And I don't. At the time, I was like, if I'm going to go to do stand up, I want to. I want to crush it. I want to get further ahead than anybody else in a faster amount of time. So I was performing two or three shows a night for. Six nights a week for Whoa. a year and a half. Basically. Whoa, you were in it deep, deep, and I and the way to do that was I started producing my own live comedy shows. I had this. There was this place uh, called Amagi's uh, yeah, Sushi that was also on Sunset, right? Well, you're thinking of Miyagi's. Oh yes, I'm thinking of Miyagi's, which is uh, over by the Comedy Store. It was Amagi's. by du- it was by Dublin's back in do the day. Do you know day. where Gower Gulch is across from Viacom? Yes, yes. There's there's a uh, I think it's a Subway now. Next to the Starbucks. That's where it was? That was a sushi restaurant. And they used to have live comedy every Wednesday night. And so there's this, t- this comedian named TK who I, was, I would do the open mic night. And he got tired of running it. And I became friendly with him. And I said, hey, why don't you let me take it over? So I did a live comedy show every Wednesday night from 7 to 11. Mm-hmm. The first three hours were open mic. And then the last hour was, um, you know, like a headliner show. Right. So I had some real names coming in. Really? But the way that it would work was I would trade stage time with other guys running shows around town. Um, and so I'd have a place to, to perform uh, whatever so, I wanted so to. So you gave them some of your stage so you could get some of theirs. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It was – and that, that, you, that was the current. A year and a half you were on the grind. On the ground. The people that don't realize, so the comedy store was ran by Mitzi Shore, who's Polly Shore's mom. Yeah. So Polly grew up at the comedy store. Absolutely. And this was post Encino Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I you mean, were there. So Polly was Polly. Polly was definitely Polly. Like at the five time. minutes past being Polly. It was before they did that reality show, Minding the Store. Right. It was like, Polly was still relevant. He was still, 
uh, a, a big celebrity. But he's a couple years past, like, in the Army now, and, like, Absolutely. his movie career is kind of winding down. Absolutely. But if Polly comes through, it's still Polly F. And oh, Shore. I mean, he, he was, yeah. st- you know, he was a big star. Like, By the way, Polly Shore saw him at real screen, like, two real screens ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's he's out there pitching. You see him? <laughs> he's, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you do a year and a half on the grind in comedy. You're producing. You're kind of having your own showcase, open mic night. So you're starting to get the juices of producing and hustling. Yes. And that leads to a TV gig? Yeah. So what happened was um, I had left, you know, this is sort of the tail end of the, the um, Tales from the Crypt experience. And so I I'd taken some time off. Um, I was working on – I worked on – some game shows. I was the whammy for Press Your Luck. I literally appeared as dressed up as the whammy from Press Your Luck at like live events. I did the Lakers halftime show. <laughs> I got abused and beaten down at a UNLV game. Press Your Luck was still on the air in it was the 2000s. The all new Press Your Luck, bro. In the early 2000s, it was the all new Press Your Luck. Where did it air? Was GSN? On GSN. GSN was around then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, Mike. So. <laughs> yeah, good times. Uh, I wore a full bodysuit orange leotard. Um, and a giant whammy head, and I got like 500 bucks, and they had handlers for me. 500 bucks a night or a week? No, for a day, for an Shut appearance. Up. Yeah, really? Yeah, it's huge money for me. Oh, that's I mean, good money. Oh, it was everything. I mean, it, it paid my bills that year, and it allowed me to, you know, start thinking about being a show creator. So I'm, I'm, I'm 20. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How do you think of being a show creator from being the dress up whammy well, guy? What I mean is it, it allowed me to have free time to think about creating shows. <laughs> so while you're in the suit, you're, you're thinking of shows, dude, I would get $500 to show up at a Dave and Buster's for an hour and like, just be there and take pictures with people. <laughs> so you had a lot of free time, is what you're saying. So, yeah. so you're getting good money. I was a stand up and I was doing pay the, the bills. anything, and I I was getting I had money, so I was. And like, you're coming up with like game show format concepts. No, so what I did was um, I I sort of I, I had kind of an epiphany um, this one you know winter. I was 26. I felt like, oh my god, the thing the reason I'm in entertainment is because I wanted to create television shows. I kind of had forgotten that and, and, and sort of taken a, a, the, the sidetrack on the comedy side. And so I said, all right, let me try to create a TV show. So I took um, six weeks and I basically did a couple whammy gigs and then got some unemployment and, you know, and just started thinking. And at the time, uh, Hidden Camera was popping up. Jamie Kennedy had the uh, Jamie Kennedy experiment had just launched. Right. And I thought, well, what if I could do – like a, a comedy show set in a green room because I'd worked on game shows and my brother was working at Game Show Network and where we, they're captive. It's a captive audience. When you're on a game show, you are told the moment you arrive on set from the moment you leave, you are, everything is dictated to you. You cannot mm-hmm. talk to people. You cannot, you know, go on a phone. You can, you're just sitting in a green room. All, and I thought, well, that's a captive audience. That's, that's an environment where I could really mess with people. Hmm. So I created a show called Game Over where um, we took winners from game shows. So back then it was Lingo and Funny Money. And we'd, we'd usher them into my hidden camera green room, and I would basically just fuck with them. <laughs> and sometimes they won $300, but sometimes they won 3000 and But I treated them all the same, and I would put – I talked – in my stand-up, I used to do – talk about characters. Were you on camera? You were the one actually messing with them on camera? No, I was – I okay. wrote okay. – I created, wrote, directed, and produced the series myself. Do you remember what that budget was? 
$45,000 an episode. There you go. And I made uh, $1,500 for, I think, three months of work. So you're 26. Yeah. You've now created, directed, wrote your own show. Mm-hmm. Your brother is already a TV executive yep. at GSN. Mm-hmm. So until you guys joined up at Ugly Brother, were you always on the producing side? And was Tim always on the network side? Or did Tim ever dip into producing previously? So before Tim was a network executive, he was in production management. Okay. So he worked for um, – he did a show called Sex Wars, um, a syndication show that was hosted by J.D. Roth. Um, I remember that vaguely. Yeah. Um, he did a, a few shows where he was like a PA and, and then he was a production coordinator okay. and then he became a network executive. And then he did that for like 13 years. So GSN and Spike were his two network. For 13 years, you guys were on like opposite sides of the business. Yes. Telling each other, no, I have it harder. No, I have it harder. Yes. Yes. Always having those debates. Absolutely. Now that you've joined up. Yeah. It's uh, he knows Does that he... I've always had it harder. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. That's what I was waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Well, we knew that for. we were going to start Ugly Brother. Um, our cousin, we were all sitting around smoking weed one night. It was like 2003 or something. And my cousin says, "You know what? You guys should start a company one day." And we're like, "Yeah, you yeah, know, we've definitely talked about that." And he's like, "You know what? You could call it. You could just call it Ugly Brother, and then people are going to be like, but." Your twins, which one's the ugly brother? And he was totally right. I mean, it's that name. Total. Every single time there's somebody who sees that name for the first time, they ask that question. They realize that we're twins. They ask, "Well, who's the ugly brother?" I mean, every friggin' time. So yeah, I don't know. We just have always had this plan, and you know, we launched four years ago, and it the name works. We'll get into ugly brother in a second, but you, you worked at. What, RDF along yep. the way? RDF. A lot of stops. I worked at uh, Painless Productions with right. Jim Casey. Then I worked at RDF. Uh, RDF became Zodiac. Um, and then I you know, went over to, to Electus, which we'll get into. Where we first met. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you some questions before we get to Ugly Brother. Worst job interview or weirdest job interview? Well, the weirdest job interview was the Electus job interview. With so, who? With Ben Silverman. Oh, I got to hear this. All right. So Ben, here's what happened, right? Over the years, I had seen Ben, you know, around town. Like Ben is affable and everybody knows him and he acts like he knows you and he doesn't know you, right? And that's just who Ben is. He's great at that. Um, I was leaving Zodiac and I knew that I had put in many, many years as a head of development at various companies. And so I said, I I run into Ben at L'Hermitage and you know, literally just crossing paths in the hall. He's like, what's up, buddy? What are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, you know what? I'm thinking about my next thing. I kind of want to, you know, uh, eat what I kill, right? I, I don't want to be running development for anybody. I want to just, you know, create and produce my shows. And he goes, oh, perfect. He goes, we should meet up, you know, because I'm looking for, you know, for somebody over at Electus. And I said, great. Um, but I just want to be clear. Like, I'm looking for an overall deal, not like I had a development thing. Right, because you were already that. doing that. Yeah, and I didn't even know you at this time, at no. this point. And so uh, he goes, Here, here's my number. You know, give my office a call. We'll set up uh, a, a time to meet so we can kind of talk in more detail. So I'm like, all right, great. So I go uh, to meet with Ben over at the IAC building on Sunset. And I walk in, and there's all this weird artwork and the Emmys and the office script. And the glass table. Yeah, yeah. And Amanda Krenzman was like, she greeted me, and, like, we talked art, you know. Right. and. And I was like, any advice? And she was like, no, he's just, you know, just just roll with it. You know, you never know what you're going to get, which was great advice. You can't prepare for Ben anyway. Definitely not. So 
she sits me down at the at the table in his office, and in walks Ben, and he goes, "Oh, hey, buddy, it's great to see you. I'm so glad we're sitting down. I've been a you know big fan of yours over the years." And I'm like, "Okay, I'm like, fan. What do you mean, fan?" He's like, "You know, I just just tracking your work and all that stuff and the success you've had, Hardcore Pawn. He's like, it's a huge show, huge show. You did that, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah I did that." So. I have my resume right next to me, and he's, I, he doesn't even take a look at it, nothing. So we, we, we have this great meeting. We, we, we talk about his vision for the company. We talk about what I want to do in an overall deal with Electus, and we basically – he goes, let's do it. And so we shake hands, right? And we're literally in the sort of afterglow of a handshake. Yep. And he goes, man, it's just going to be cool to have you over here. You know, with all your experience at Spike, I've always really enjoyed pitching to you. Oh, and I go, oh, God. There it is. I go, Ben – I'm not – I never worked at Spike. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And I go, no, 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 Ben, I have, I never worked at Spike. Tim worked at Spike. And he goes, who's Tim? And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I go, Ben, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm Mike Duffy. He goes, I know. I said, I have a twin brother named Tim who has worked at Spike for the last however many years. I've never worked at Spike. And he goes silent. He looks down and he goes – you just blew my fucking mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I look at him and the silence, Holy, oh. I'm like, oh, this is the weirdest thing. I've, I've never, oh my God, what do I do? So I take my resume and I push it across the table and I go, yeah. should we start over? <laughs> and he goes, no, 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 come on in. You start Monday. That was it. <laughs> start Monday, you're hired. Yeah. Worst production um, experience, like worst set you've been on as an executive producer where you're like, Oh, this is going sideways fast. Like a pilot presentation. Can I shift to that and answer it differently? Sure. So I actually just had the scariest production experience that I've ever had working on the goddamn Comedy Jam. Okay. For Comedy Central. It's a good segue in Ugly Brother Productions. Yeah. Here. Okay. Um, so, you know, Comedy Jam um, was, you know, a series on Comedy Central. We did the pilot back in 2016. We got picked up to series. The series aired this, this past spring. And what's, what's the premise of this? The premise this is- of it is it's based on the underground comedy show, The Goddamn Comedy Jam, which, would, which has been around for several years. Um, and it played at the Lyric Theater. And basically comedians come in, they tell a funny story about a song from their past, and then they perform that song with the live band. It's genius. So it, it's it, like Comedy Central's version of Lip Sync Battle. Yes, it is. And, and ex- but it's like it's really um, – the, the 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 music is actually really really great. You, it's fantastic. You're surprised to know it's a live band, right? Live band, yeah. And what and 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 the every one of the comedians brought some level of performance to their song. Right. Our goal: we didn't put anyone who couldn't sing or at least perform and make it funny and make it really you know interesting right. uh, uh, song performance. So um, so we had we had a, a, a bunch of really great performers. But we started in in series. We thought you know what, let's do some cameos. And so um, I had a friend who had a connection to DMX. Oh, my gosh. And Jay Farrow had (laughs) done the pilot for our show. And so I called Jay and I go, listen, um, would you please consider doing the series? I know you did the pilot. He's like, man, I loved it. I thought it was great. I would definitely do the series. He goes, but I just don't know what I want to do because he had done Where Are You Now, Justin Bieber for the pilot. Nice. Um, And I said, well, let me ask you this. If I can get DMX to come and perform Party Up with you, will you do Party Up? And he goes, fuck yeah. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) So I go, all right, let me see what I can do. So I I call my buddy um, who knows the DMX folks, and basically 
he's like, dude, he's in. He loves Jay. He 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 saw the pilot. He wants he wants in. So I'm like, oh my god. And he goes, let me tell you, to get DMX is like the biggest coup you can imagine. He doesn't show up to anything. And by the way, you should also know he doesn't show up to anything. Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's what the manager's saying. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, it's DMX. Like, I'll I'll, I'll he also I'll doesn't show up to court. He doesn't. <laughs> he shows up to you know the airport with guns. And, Anyway, um, uh, we won't go to that. There's been a checkered pass with DMX over the years. A little bit of a checkered pass. But at one point, when I was in high school, DMX was the rap hip-hop equivalent to an all-time rock star. Yeah, yeah. Those first two albums were huge. Yes. And he was on the Hard Knock Life tour with Jay-Z, and he was as big as anybody is today. He was all over the place back in the day. And and his songs were the anthem, the party anthems, you know? And it was a crossover um, those songs were crossover songs. Yeah. Um, the, you like know, 98 to like 2003, DMX was a big deal. Yeah. And there's a lot of like middle-class middle white kids who would sing DMX songs oh, yeah. and come to a screeching halt when he threw the N-word out. <laughs> yes. It's hilarious to see. Which is people. a great separate skill in itself yeah. as a white dude who loves hip-hop to memorize the version of these songs and to edit out the N-word yes. as you're rapping them is like another skill on top of a skill. Yeah. It's, and a necessary and mandatory one. Extremely mandatory. So DMX is supposed to show up to set. Okay, so so we so DMX so he he's in basically for the show. You know the way we worked it was rehearsal was the day before taping, and all of our cameos. You know the musicians we had. You know Richie Sambora show up. We, I mean it wow. was like it was a it was a real deal. We uh, Kenny Loggins did amazing uh, a, a performance with John Rudnitsky. I mean it was awesome. So DMX, we realized that DMX is not going to show up for rehearsal. No. Um, on the day before. So I'm like, well, just make sure he gets here for tomorrow. You know, we'll, we'll figure out a way to work his rehearsals into the, to the actual shoot day. So we, sure enough, we, we re- reschedule everything. His team, not only did they miss the second day rehearsal on the shoot day, they show up literally like an hour and a half before the doors are supposed to open. And we had no, we had lost track of them. They were not responding to us. No, Jay Farrell was like, yo, bro, where's DMX? <laughs> like, I told you. He's going to be here, oh. but I also – please, oh. Jay, like I warned you that it's going to be touch and go, but his people are telling me it's going to happen. And is the plan – because it's it's a series and maybe maybe it's modular, maybe it's not. I'm not sure how the format works, but can you easily just scrap this from an episode and fill it with something else later? Or do you need Jay to go on like by himself at this point? So What's the backup plan? Backup plan was for Jay to do it without DMX right. performing. Right. He was just going to do party up his version. Right. But I mean, we we, we it's not a like, good look. It's not. A good it's look. not a good look. And to have DMX show up and blow the roof off the place was a great way to end the series. And, and it's a promo moment. Yeah. And that was the thing. It was like, and I had sort of gotten Comedy Central on board. Everybody was on board, and 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 they knew it was a risk. So he shows up. I get a call on you know the headset. Hey, DMX and his people are here. Uh, come on out. So I'm like, oh, thank God. I go out. I grab Jay and go over to DMX's trailer. DMX has, you know, probably 15 guys around him. And I, I walk up to the biggest guy and I say, hey, I'm <laughs> and you, Mike. And you punch him in the face because yeah. that's what you do when you're the new kid on the yard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they respected me after that. No, I did not. That did not happen. I'm pretty sure I got a wedgie. Tell your mom Mike Duffy from Philly says hi. <laughs> hi. I'm Michael Duffy, the <laughs> producer who booked DMX. Um, I mean, they were just like, what are you? And so, so the, guys, the guy goes, what's up, man? Yeah, I know who you are. My name's Spank. 
Yep. And I go, hey, hey, Spank. Uh, um, so it's all good. You guys are late. It's fine. Um, you know, Jay wants to meet up with DMX and, you know, X. I mean, you, I know you call him X. So Jay wants to meet X. And um, so I just want you guys to, like, maybe talk about the performance. And Jay has some ideas on when X is going to be able to come in and join him in the lyric. Um, so if we could just make that happen, I'm going to actually push your performance until the last performance of the night. So you guys can kind of settle in and just get your head straight. He goes, yeah, 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 man. L- listen, listen, I just got to tell you one thing. You're going to thank me later. And I go, I'm, I'm sorry. What? And he goes, you heard me, man. He goes, my name is spank and you're going to thank me later. And I go, okay, okay great. I'm going to head in now. <laughs> Wait, that was it. Nope. So. I leave them. We go. Wait, I thought you said I have one thing to tell you, and you're going to thank me later. He did. Oh, you... he didn't fill in the blanks. He just let that hang out in the air. And that was I... it. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I don't know what this means. This scares me. So he's going to tell you something at a later time. Yes. That you will thank him for later. Yes. He, okay. He apparently knew that he was going to be the guy to fix any problems that were inevitably about to happen. Okay. Because um, he's a longtime friend of. DMXs, and he's had a lot of experience at this. Sure. So I said, "All right, cool." So I go and we shoot the the remaining episodes of the series. Sure enough, the Jay Farrow DMX segment is the last segment we're going to shoot. I get a call two minutes before DMX is supposed to appear on stage on the headset. Hey, you got to come out. DMX won't come out of the trailer. I'm like, oh my god. So I'm like, well, just tell him. Just tell him Mike Duffy said, <laughs> come out of the trailer. They're like, it's not working. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. You mean the executive producer he's never met? Yeah. Joel <laughs> Gallen, who's our director, we had hired Joel to come in. And Joel was like, dude, you got to get out there. I'm like, all right, let me go. So I go out to the trailer. And sure enough, I mean, the thing is just r- literally rocking. And the music is beyond belief. And you can't see through the windows. There's, it's just full of smoke. Yeah. Now, DMX, I was told, is sober. Right. So I walk I'm banging on the door. Could be his entourage. Banging on the door. Uh, Spank pulls the, the curtain back, sees me, and I go, hey, it's Mike Duffy. <laughs> and he goes, all right, man, you're cool. He opens the door, grabs me by the scruff, basically pulls me in, and I look around. It's a tiny trailer. It's not big. There's no DMX in there. There's a dude over here in an NFL jersey giving somebody a haircut. There's a dude over here who's smoking the biggest blunt I've ever seen and then four other blunts being passed around. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, hey, Spank, listen, DMX is supposed to be on stage. And now it's like a minute. Where is he? He goes, he's cool, man. He's cool. He's cool. Just be patient. And I go, listen, Spank, dude, <laughs> please just tell me where DMX is. And I look. He goes, he points over there. I look over in the bathroom, and there's DMX psyching himself up and he's looking in the mirror and i just see the back of him and all of a sudden he turns around pounds a bottle of hennessy right in front of me and he goes remember i said you'd thank me later spike spank goes remember i said you'd thank me later i go yeah and he goes now's the time i go do you want me to thank you what please stop speaking in code spank just tell me what i need to do to get dmx on the stage and he goes man we gotta pray I said, okay, okay, all right, we got to pray. I get it. I know DMX is a preacher now. Let's do this. And I go, hey, hey, X, ready for a prayer? He's ignoring me. Ignoring me. I go, X, what's up, man? We got we got to do a prayer, right? <laughs> Dude goes, hey, man, you got to hit this first. I go, I'm not hitting that. I'm not, like, I'm not a, you know. Spank, tell him I'm not hitting that. I'm no monk, but I'm not smoking whatever's in the DMX, no. you know, blunts. No. 
So anyway, finally I get DMX's attention and I look at him and I go, X, I need you to come in and I need you to crush. We got 700 people in the venue and Jay Farrow waiting for you to take the stage. Are you going to do this? What's up, man? Do we need to pray or what? And he goes, yeah, man, we need to pray. So he goes, let's join hands. So we join hands. Me, Spank, dude in a jersey, some barber apparently giving somebody a haircut, <laughs> 17 joints and, and blunts, and DMX. And he starts leading the group in prayer. And he goes, Gee, dear Lord Jesus, you, you raise me up. You bring me up. You put me on stage to do your work, to do your will. I climb up the mountain, and I get to the top, and then I fall, and I roll back down the other side. But do you know what I do? And, the, and all the guys are going, yeah, yeah, we know what you do. You know what you do. I get back up, and I climb that mountain again. And I climb, and I climb, and I get back up to the top, but then I fall again. I fall down the <laughs> I'm looking around like, Spank, please help me. I'm like, I need to hit that blunt right now. Like, this is the most stressful thing I've ever experienced. Sure enough, DMX keeps going on like he's stuck in a loop. Oh, my gosh. And I realize he's stuck in a fucking loop, dude. DMX is not, he's not getting out of this loop, and no one is helping him. So I hear Joel Gallen in my headset go, Duffy, what the fuck is going on in there? I can't hold this any longer. You need to get DMX. And I go, all right, I got it, I got it. I take my headset off. I go, all right, Amen. DMX, Amen. in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, let's get out there and blow the roof off the place. And he goes, amen, let's do this. <laughs> we all fall out of the trailer. Spank goes, good work, man, good work. And as we're walking up, he goes, yo, yo, what song am I singing? I'm like, X, you're doing party up. He goes, all right, man, I just start just start on the you know, opening line. I go, no, no, Jay Farrell's performing with you. You come in on the lyric. He's like, nah, I'm not coming on the lyric. I go, just, <laughs> just come in when you want. Sure enough. I have to watch this now. Three, two, one. I push him into the, to the shot. J- Jay Farrell's waiting for him. They, they hug. Jay Farrell goes up, takes the stage. Two minutes later, DMX joins him for his song. I mean, and did someone just crushed. point? Did someone just point at DMX and say, "Go on stage now"? Yeah, like, basically, it was no, 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 no. He just went on when he wanted to go on. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He still went on when he wanted to, but he. Cr- it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, it was like you, you. There was energy there that you could feel in that performance. That the house felt it. You know, Jay felt it. It was just one of those moments in entertainment that you don't want to pick up. You, right. you just want – and that – because we had Joel directing and Comedy Central with all these cameras and all this stuff. We got it, and it was just – it was oh, awesome. Dude. It turned into one of the best moments of my career. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Ugly Brother is still very much a startup company, right? Like how many years has it been now? Three, four years? Uh, this, we're, we're in our fourth year. Right. How hard yeah. is it in this climate to launch a company – I mean, you've had the ups and downs. You have a great show on Comedy Central. You won the Emmy yeah. for Eat the World with Emeril Lagasse on Amazon, yeah. right? One of the first, like, Amazon original production shows, yeah. right? But it's like with every victory, there's a loss. I after mean, loss, after loss as a seller. It's so hard. I mean, you know, I used to have, like, a 70, 60, 70% success rate in development of sale of, of get, moving forward in some way to a network funded, you know, situation, right. whether presentation, pilot based on the pitches series. you take out. Yeah. It was like 60, 70% did, did okay for, for several years. Now it's like, it's, it, I would say like 10% of our pitches ever move forward. And, and to get those 10% moving forward, it takes a year, couple years, you know, there's just, there's so much fear out there on the network side. Um, and and the, and that we've been 
unfortunately, we've been through many, many regime changes. Mm-hmm. So, like, com- you know, Comedy Jam didn't get a second season on Comedy Central, even though it did well enough to get a second season. Well, there's a regi- regime change. Mm. Gary Mann left. Um, you know, uh, the, the the team who bought the show left, and the right. new team said, eh, "You know, you know, we're going to kind of go in a different direction." Wow. Um, Amazon. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, you know, look, I mean, Amazon. Yeah, we win two Emmys. Um, you know. Three other nominations, two James Beard nominations. We've not gotten a second season on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also haven't told you that you're canceled either. Uh, they have they told no, they haven't. Because I, I find that is actually what happens most times. I feel like you don't even get the pass. Yeah, you just get ghosted. I, I think that the reason we haven't gotten the pass is because we won the Emmys, and because right. a lot of That's people. That's a different have... situation, like on the pickup thing. Yeah. Is a pickup always kind of can hang out there for a while. Totally. Um, until the, I guess their option is up contractually to yeah. pick up another season. But on pitches, don't you find that to be the case these days? That most times you're not getting an executive call. You say, "Hey, we're passing." No, it's just kind of we didn't never heard back on that. Yes, exactly. We followed up. We never heard back. Yeah, it is what it is. And if you push for that pass, there's like they get offended. Yeah, like and I've actually had a network executive who, who shall remain nameless say, "Well, dude, why do you think I wasn't calling you back?" <laughs> 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 Which yeah. I appreciate his honesty. I, I again, like, we got to take it light. We got to have some fun. We got to call each other on our bullshit. And he was calling himself on his bullshit, and he was calling me on like being Wayne naive. Simpson. How was Wayne? <laughs> no, I wasn't Wayne. <laughs> no, no, he went straight to series fifteen times. I love Wayne, dude. Wayne, I, oh, I love Wayne. He's I love one Wayne of my too. best friends. Wayne's great. Hey, uh, no, I, I only say that because I know you're close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all went and saw the uh, Globetrotters together. Yeah, that's right. He brought his kid. That oh was, my god, that was before I even had a kid, man. Yeah, that was one of the Duffy outings. There you I, go. I got I got to participate in. Yeah. It is a Christmas-themed show. Yes. This is going to roll out around the holidays or just after the holidays. So I want to do a version of Christmas Rapid Fire. Oh, God. With Mike Duffy. Okay. Most overrated Christmas movie. Overrated Christmas movie. Uh, Santa Claus. I watched it last night. It's awful. With with Tim Allen? Yeah. See, I also think Santa Claus, the movie, the Dudley Moore movie, also also very overrated. Yeah. Well, anything Dudley Moore, in my opinion, is overrated. Arthur. Arthur. Arthur was awful. I never got it. I never got it either. I, I just didn't. was like, why are... What would be the good Dudley Moore movie if not Arthur? What was the other thing that made him Dudley Moore? He... I don't know. I never got... He always looked like one of the monkeys to me. You know, he looked like... Yeah, but I'm trying to... Besides Arthur, what was like the defining Dudley Moore movie that made him a celebrity? Like, was he like a Polly Shore type guy that had like his like three, four movies and then like disappeared forever? It's a good question. I think I was a toddler when he was, you know, coming up. You know, honestly, this might surprise you. Overrated movies. I've never been a fan of the original Miracle on 34th Street. Really? Yeah. It's never connected with I it? love Christmas movies. Never been a fan of that one. Huh. Yeah. Wow. And It's a Wonderful Life might be my favorite movie. Wow. Like, movie. Like, I love Christmas movies, but not a fan of that one. Well, you know. And, or The Grinch. Or the Jim Carrey Grinch, by the way. Ever, like, in your whole life? Or just since you became a cynical? No, even, even as a kid. Like, mm-hmm. just never took to that okay. original 34th I get it. Street. I get it. Uh, most underrated Christmas movie. I mean, I don't know if it's underrated, but Elf is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. I mean, I just I could watch anything with Will Ferrell, but I, I mean, every single year I watch Elf like probably five times around the Christmas season. It's a good choice. It's great. Mine would be Scrooged. Oh, I love Scrooge. Scrooge is fantastic. One of Bill Murray's b- best parts ever. I mean, so emotional. Great cast. Yeah. Great overall performance. It's great. I, and I just love the '80s TV executive oh, role he plays. So good. Uh, Still holds up. Ham or turkey. 
Uh, I'm, without a doubt, ham. I do not get turkey. I didn't even make turkey this this thir- Thanksgiving. I'm 36 years old, and I'm just starting to realize we basically do turkey just because you're told to. Yes. Turkey but, sucks. But turkey, even at its best, is like marginal. No, I did the Martha Stewart turkey for like seven years where you take a cheesecloth, you, 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 you know, basically soak it in white wine and butter, and then you brush a white wine butter sauce over the turkey breast for like six hours straight. And I realized it's that— It's so much work for so little return. And it wasn't even that good. Yeah. I think if you deep fry it, I, I was think about they're to say, so I, smart. I heard deep frying is fantastic. I did say, I, I don't, I've had a deep fried turkey. It was the only time I enjoyed it. Okay, so a deep fried turkey is worth it. I think the thing, and it takes like forty five minutes. Oh, is it that fast? Yeah, yeah. Just don't overfill it because displacement is real, and it'll burn down your entire house. Yes, there's been many YouTube videos yep. that have documented that, uh, that gone awry. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to see if you just get it without any context. Okay. If we're on the same wavelength here, this Ooh. is a test of like if we are simpatico here. All right. Bing, Dean, or Frank. Oh, dude. Well, first of all, I think you got to go Bing, mainly... Oh, my God! Wait, I'm just going straight voice here. Straight voice. So forget swag, forget the aura. I'm just going straight voice singing. Bing Crosby, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. Bing. Me too. Bing. I had this conversation with my brother the other day. My brother still went Frank. But I feel like the Frank lore kind of influences us when we listen to him. The swag influences us. But Bing's voice... I think is the best of the best. It's velvet. It's butter. It's he's Buble. <laughs> I mean, I made you know. Yes. We, we, we the Buble Christmas special was your baby at Electus. It was my baby. I mean, you got to hang with Buble, dude. I got to hang with Buble, and I loved it. And it was the most my most favorite thing I ever made in my whole life. It was the opportunity of a lifetime to make a Bing Crosby inspired Michael Buble Christmas special. Yeah, awesome. I remember when? Do you know the story when I pitched it to Barry? Ben Barry. told me to pit. He goes. Oh, Barry, Barry uh, Diller. Diller. No. Okay. So, so I basically, the way that I got involved with the Buble special was Ben had made a deal with Warner Brothers Records right. and brought Lorne Michaels into it to make the Christmas special that year. That's right. Lorne uh, had committed to other Christmas specials, including a very gilly Christmas. That's right. And wig. And it they, was, they dr- uh, and they dropped out, right? Yes. In August, I'm like, I, Ben had told me about the show, about this show. And I was like, dude, if I would love to work on that, he goes, Oh, Lauren's producing it, you know, but cool, cool. You can go. I was like, all right, great. It's August. We're shooting the show in early November <laughs> for that Christmas. Um, and there's an album release coming out. It was the first year that, uh, right. uh Michael Boulay Christmas came out. Warner Brothers had put a bunch of money into this. NBC had put some money into it. We had an air date, the whole thing, but there was no concept behind it. Had Bublé not previously had a Christmas album, or is this the Christmas this album? This is it. This is the Because that album. Christmas album now is, is my favorite Christmas album. Uh, ever. It's yeah. the greatest thing ever. And yeah. when you listen to, like, Amazon Music, whatever it is, on the Christmas station, every yeah. third song is from that yeah, album. Yeah, like, you can say Whitney and Mariah, of course, have had some great yeah. one or two, three Christmas songs amongst them. But yeah. album, front to back. Yeah. The Buble Christmas album, better than Elvis, better than Dean, better than any of those Christmas albums. No question about it. Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing. And okay, so you have no you have no production company now that's physically producing this. So we have no production company. And Ben calls me and he goes, he goes, hey, um, you you did musical theater, right? I said, yeah. And he goes, cool. <laughs> so did everybody in this town. Literally, that was what he said. He goes, that's the qualifier. Yes. I was like, shit, man. I'm glad I never showed you my resume. You did musical theater in high school. Yeah. 
Why don't you? So we have an make... NBC, the national broadcasting channel, has yeah, asked us exactly. to do a Christmas special with Michael Bublé and Warner yeah. Brothers. You're perfectly qualified, Mike, Mike Duffy. Get, get in the game. Yeah, ever hey, since your NBC? performance in Hello Dolly, <laughs> I think you're perfect to make uh, an NBC, NBC special. I'm sending Mike Duffy over, who did musical <laughs> theater in high school. Yeah. I'm putting him on the next plane. Don't worry, the Lord Michael just backed out. Yeah, Mike Duffy from Philadelphia. Yeah, he's got it. Is on his way. I replace Lord Michaels because. I was in Hello Dolly in high school. That is a true story. And I, I, I vividly remember you being in the office and freaking out. Yeah, we had – well, we had – so basically what had happened was um, there was no creative on the show. I flew out with Doug Vaughn from NBC to meet up with Buble. He was doing a show in um, Austin or something. And we hit it off. I'm like, dude, I – you. I can't even tell you all my musical theater experience is really going to come to bear on making this show. I didn't actually bring that up, but I was, you know, we just, we hit it off. He's a great guy. Really, really great guy as you know, nice and regular as like, if he was just sitting here right with us. And so I said, all right, well I'm on it. Let me pull together. We talked about the creative of the show. He wanted it to be a Bing Crosby inspired Christmas special, a throwback. Old school. So I come back to LA and we, I pitch out, um, you know, uh, some segments to NBC and they're like, cool, we're on board. Now you just need a showrunner. So we go out to the guys from white cherry. I mean, many, many, you know, Glenn Weiss that, you know, and many, many Emmys, like they had, they award shows, right? Like they're amazing. The problem with those guys at the time was that they were too busy Mm -hmm. and they had taken on the job. And of course they can do the stuff in their sleep, especially one hour around a Christmas special when they're used to doing the Grammys and dealing with like hip hop artists who are not, you're going to pull a DMX. Right. So it was nothing to them. Well, for me, it was everything. And they just were not responding to my calls. They weren't responding to Buble's requests. Like it was just like a last minute thing. That's how they, they roll. That wasn't working for me. So I said to them, guys, this is not working out. Like I need you to really honestly work in earnest and produce this thing. And I realized that you guys are used to not having to like answer to anybody don't think of it like that. You don't answer to me, right. but just try to hit a deadline every once And we're, we're answering to a ticking clock. Yeah. And it was just, I was just, I was overwhelmed with the responsibility of pulling this off. And I wanted to make it amazing. So, um, we separated from White Cherry. Um, they went on and I hired, uh, Brad Lockman, okay. um, to come on board who, you know, he and Bill Bracken came on and they're just like, yeah, we get it. Cool. Let's do it. And I led the creative charge with Buble. We brought on, um, comedy, uh, the, uh, uh, college humor guys right. to do some comedy shorts with us and Ed Helms. Was there a Muppet sketch? Yeah. Well, we not a Muppet sketch, but we had Oscar the Grouch. That's right. Yeah, which was awesome. We had Justin Bieber, Kelly Pickler. That's we so had cool. Oscar the Grouch. I mean, Did you just, shoot in Canada? Where'd you shoot that? No, we shot it in Brooklyn. Okay. At a soundstage. Um, but the when so Ben was like, yeah, it sounds good, great, great. He goes, hey, uh, I have my weekly call with Barry come in and I want you to pitch the show out to Barry. So I come in and I go, it's a Bing Crosby throwback. And Buble, you know, is going to be uh, performing alongside Kelly Pickler, the country artist, and Talia, the Mexican singer. And we've got Oscar the Crouch and Justin Bieber and Ed Helms and blah, 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 blah. And then silence. And he looks through that video conference, you know, thing that he does. And he, like straight down the barrel at me and he goes, well, you certainly are swinging down the middle. What's next? And that was it. I was like, is that, a, is, that a good, is that a good thing? Thank you, Barry Diller. Swinging down the middle, meaning you're doing the on-the-nose version the of that on show. The on-the-nose version of that show. And it was, it was a hit. It did really well. I mean, he's done like four or five since then. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
Have they really? Yeah. Not with Electus. Only one with Electus? Or was there a... F- I think was it was year, just the Was first year one? two with Electus? I can't remember. I, don't, I can't remember. I left after that first one. Yeah. But I know Brad and Bill produced... We're still attached to it and still made the, the subsequent Got ones. it. That was a great story. Dude, good stories, man. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you for having me, man. Happy holidays to you and the family, man. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. Congrats on the success of this year and this podcast. You're just one of the best, and I'm so glad to sit with you. You're too kind. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, man.